this week on a lively experiment. We are just days away from primary day. This week, three reporters who have moderated debates with the candidates over the past several weeks. And the withdrawal of one candidate has some asking, should the early voting window be tightened? A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us for a Reporters Roundtable, Ian Donis, political reporter for The Public's Radio, Boston Globe reporter Steph Machado, and Providence Journal State House reporter Patrick Anderson. Hello and welcome to Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. If you are in the East Bay, Blackstone Valley, or Aquidneck Island this weekend, don't be surprised if you run into one of more than a dozen candidates running for the first congressional district seat. They all know their ground game may decide this race and will be out in full force trying to secure undecided votes. Patrick, I think that's what a lot of it is. We don't have really accurate polling on this. It will be the ground game. What are you looking for between now and primary day? To see if the moderate vote consolidates more around a candidate. I mean, I think usually in these elections, as the as election day nears, the race kind of tightens up. And so I think what everyone's going to be watching is Sandra Cano, Gabe Amo, Sabina Matos. Does the, the vote for those candidates kind of coalesce around one of them and allow one of them to really take over that mantle and potentially challenge Aaron Regenberg for the top spot. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, even though we didn't have any public polling in this race, the assumption um, is that Aaron Regenberg is in the lead. So he has a, a chunk of support and people who don't want to vote for him some are still deciding if they're going to vote for Amo or Kano or Matos or somebody else. Um, and I think I've heard people saying, I, I just want to vote for whoever has the best chance. And so it, this is a weekend where we're going to see um, whether someone can really have a, a big breakout moment. But it's a holiday weekend. People are going to barbecues, going to the beach. I'm not sure how much the average voter is going to pay attention. And the debates are largely over. I mean, Channel 10 will have its today, and, yep. then, that, and then that's it. Ian? Let's face it, Regenberg had a big advantage coming in because he had excellent name recognition from being a previous elected official. Uh, Sabina Matos started that way, but, of course, she was dogged by a lot of weeks of unflattering coverage about her signature controversy. The challenge for Gabe Amo is that although he has been well-known by political reporters like us for many years, he has not been well known across the district and trying to get that name recognition across a congressional district in a couple of months is a heavy lift. He's got a good story. He communicates well, probably the most polished guy in the race along with Regenberg. And Sandra Cano has a lot of endorsements. Uh, she could benefit from the flowering of a more diverse General Assembly that's been led by the Blackstone Valley. I mean, we're 25 years out from when Luisa Ponte became the first Latino city councilor in Providence. And, uh, you know, Matos, uh, you know, she s still has residual support. So it'll be curious to see how, how Amo does. It is funny how, you know, we were talking about Sabina Matos and the signature scandal for so many weeks. And then during that Channel 12 debate, I thought she was almost kind of relegated. She, she was sitting off to the side and then almost relegated to kind of like an, an afterthought. But don't count her out because of all those endorsements she has. Again, 
boots on the ground to get to the polls, right? I, I definitely wouldn't count her out. She had a lot of outside money supporting her. There's going to be ads on TV all weekend. She has name recognition, but there's no question that the signature scandal hurt her. Again, especially when it was the dog days of summer. No one was paying attention to this race. They go to turn on the evening news, and there's a signature scandal, Sabina Matos. She's now connected to that phrase. But I also thought it was very telling in the Channel 12 debate. No one attacked her. And every single <laughs> debate prior to that, everyone attacked her for the signature scandal. Everyone left her alone in the Channel 12 debate for the most part. And they went after Aaron Regenberg. So it shows at least that the candidates think that she's no longer a threat. Yeah, there's nothing worse than when someone doesn't attack you. When, yeah. you, when you don't get attacked, <laughs> that's a problem. Um, yeah, I think, the sig it, I think the signature thing hurt. I don't think we'll ever know whether Sabina could have consolidated that vote if it hadn't been for the signature scandal. Some question whether she ever could have, um, but we'll, we'll kind of never know. Um, her big hope is that that support from the unions, from the laborers, uh, and that mail ballot game, the early vote might have gotten uh, some votes in the bank before things kind of tailed off. Um, but it's it's not looking as likely. Ian, the Providence Newspaper Guild for years, we went to that show, I was in that show, and they always used to say, it's better to be skewered than ignored, right? Because if you're a player, you get skewered. I'm sorry. Absolutely, Jim. And the hard part for Matos is that there was such extensive coverage of the signature gathering issue is that it's filtered down to people who really don't pay much attention to the news. And they just know that there was this kind of negative controversy in which Matos had a connection. Uh, you know, she does have a certain degree of institutional support from labor unions. One interesting thing in this race is how a lot of top elected officials, from Governor McKee to Speaker Shikarchi to elected officials in Massachusetts, have stayed out of endorsing. You know, would that have tipped the scales in Matos's favor had she gotten endorsements from key elected Democrats? Maybe. But, you know, we see how things have gone in a different direction. Each of you has sat uh, moderating. You did the Globe one with uh, Ed Fitzpatrick. You guys were together at RIC. Um, give me your thoughts from the front row seat. What, when, now, it's been a couple of weeks since yours, and yours was a little bit more recent. But as you were sitting there, did anything surprise you? Or as you watched, what were your impressions? My first impression was that there were just too many candidates. You know, <laughs> And we had a 90-minute debate, which was, which was good because that's a little bit longer. But there's just not enough time to get to every topic we wanted to get to, to get to every question we wanted to get to. Candidates who, you know, respectfully, don't have a chance at winning, you know, of course, got to share their views and everything, and, and that's great, but I think that was my impression from all the debates, was that if we had had some public polling or some more data that could narrow the invite list, it would have been more useful for the voter. But I did think, you know, it's a smart field of candidates, a diverse field of candidates. Um, it definitely started to get really fiery, at least in the last few debates. And we'll see. I, I think the debates do have make an impression on voters because they get to see you in the flesh and, and see you on TV, but we'll see. I think these debates have been a public service because you get to see the candidates talk about issues. And there are some candidates who engage more in what seems like a sloganeering or just a really short description of a policy and others who talk about it in much greater detail. So voters have a, had, had, had a chance to assess that. And uh, I think that's a value there. Yeah, I think with the number, it was very, uh, the number of candidates, it was very difficult for anyone to kind of flip the script. It was very difficult to have those signature <coughs> moments where 
voters remember a phrase, remember a particular exchange, because it was very much one to the next to the next to the next, because you're trying to provide equal time and give everyone a chance to answer. So it, it doesn't allow as much for those big zingers or signature moments that you might remember from other debates. I've moderated debates, and, and you know, and I, it's like here on Lively. I want to make sure we're having a good discussion, and it, not so much on this show, but in moder moderating to say, look, if you are if you got a good point, keep it going, but then to make sure you make up on the other side. And with that number of candidates, it, it's impossible, right? Yeah, and I think what was interesting was how everyone was handling it. So you guys um, split the candidates into two different groups, and so did Channel 10, which allows you to have to each candidate to have more time but at the same time all the front runners weren't on the same stage in the same debate and then of course the downside to having everyone on the stage is that by the time you ask all 10 or 12 candidates the question 15, you forget the question 15 minutes has gone by you know and 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 you're really running out of time and so there wasn't like a perfect answer. I actually thought it was interesting to see how everyone decided to do it. What about Doug? Go ahead. I was going to say, it's going to be interesting to see next election cycle whether news organizations start to be a little more aggressive in raising their criteria to make the stage and paring back the number of candidates there, uh, or whether they stay with the more inclusive mold that's been going on the last couple of years. I just think it's been such an atypical election, though, because yeah. it's it's an off year. It's CD1, so all these candidates know. It's not like it's a general election and you got 15 candidates for governor. They know they could win with 8, 10, 12,000 votes, right? So why not stay in it? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's no risk in running. Steph's right. There's no single one way to have done a debate correctly. The hope is that voters get enough sense of the candidates and how they respond to questions from reporters to get a sense of really who they are and what they're about and how they would represent the, the district. And I do think in a regular election year, more people would have dropped out, right, maybe before the filing deadline even, because if they're deciding, am I going to run for this open congressional seat or am I going to try to keep my state rep, state senate seat, they, they might have made that decision differently. This year was a freebie. Anyone could run. They don't have to lose their current position. And not to beat a dead horse, but the lack of public polling really contributed to the large field that's still in the race on primary day because with public polls, with independent polls, again, people might have dropped out and endorsed their favorite candidate and consolidated more. Our friend Ted Nisi has drawn some comparisons to the, uh, the past election in the Massachusetts 4th District, now represented by Jake Auchincloss, and how that, there was a large field initially there, and some candidates dropped out in the field, kind of consolidated. But we have not seen that happen here. And I think it is because of what you said, Jim, that it is a special election. There are a number of current elected officials who don't risk losing their seats if they lose, so they don't see any downside of staying in. And the only candidate who's dropped out was essentially forced to by a scandal, that being Don Carlson. And the party leaders have kept a very light touch. In some other areas, you would see the state party or the big power players uh, use their influence, uh, either carrots or sticks, to get the field to shrink a little bit and consolidate. And they've really kept their distance from this one. I would say, and most of the candidates, you're right, it was it was a freebie, but Gabe Amo had to leave his job at mm -hmm. the White House, and Walter Burbrick had to leave his job. So it wasn't for everybody. He elected for sure, officials. for sure. Yes. Not everyone's a, in office. Look, after primary day, the, the Democrats have sucked all the air out of the room, but there are two Republican candidates. You guys had them here on this set. What baffles me is is that, especially with Gary Leonard, he and he's the endorsed candidate, we'll see how he does, 
he didn't, he excluded reporters from his opening. The one time to, you know, kind of introduce yourself and he didn't answer your survey for the journal. Chance to be on the front page Sunday. So what do you make of that? I don't get it, it. I mean, I can't say exactly. I can't. I don't know what's exactly going through their head. Because I mean, they won't is, talk to you. Yeah, there is there is a trend on the GOP of not interacting as much with the mainstream media, whether that's distrust or just a tactical, strategic thing coming out of Washington that it's more advantageous to limit your message just to outlets that are friendly to you or just limit it and target it to your voters. Remember, this is still a GOP primary, so we're talking at a very small slice of the electorate. That, I think, is what's happening. I mean, to me, it echoes a little bit with what you saw with Alan Fung in, in recent cycles where he, I mean, everyone knew him and, and the media had a relationship with him, and yet during those campaigns, he was fairly difficult to track down. I mean, he famously had had his announcement ceremony and kind of escaped from it uh, without taking questions. And then uh, even the last time out was, was very low profile until the general. At the general, generally things change a little bit, but that seems to be the, the trend on the GOP side. I was really surprised that Leonard did not answer that questionnaire from the journal. As you say, Jim, it's, it's a chance to get exposure, to get known by voters. He seemed very personable when we had a conversation with him here. He is a first-time candidate. I think his campaign is trying to skill him up in terms of interacting with the media. Patrick's right that there has been a trend among Republicans to steer clear, in some cases, of traditional objectives of media, but he, you know, he is the favorite in this race, and there would be a clear contrast between him and someone like Aaron Regenberg, Gabe Amo, or Sandra Cano, or Sabina Matos. I've always felt that you know, running a strong primary really sets you up for the for the general election. Get out there, talk to reporters, do your debates or whatever. It's not like you can turn the spigot on after primary day. And if these candidates are not used to dealing with the media, it's not on on the job training, right? Yeah, and, and you know, no one's really paying attention to the Republican primary in this particular race because it's so heavily favored towards the Democrat and Democrats, and that sort of benefits the candidates running in the GOP primary because they're not being closely scrutinized. They haven't had to take a lot of reporter questions outside of the excellent interviews that Patrick and Ian did. When we get to the general, uh, whoever's the Republican nominee is going to get more scrutiny. There's at least going to be more interviews, more reporter questions, and more coverage on if they refuse to speak to reporters or show up to worse. debates or, or whatever it is that's going to happen for the general. So the Don Carlson situation, Don Carlson dropped out after a big Channel 12 expose about some potential inappropriate contact with a student when he was a professor at Williams. We talked about that last week. Um, it has a lot of people, well, you've heard from some sectors saying, well, this is why we shouldn't have 20 days of early voting. My personal feeling is it's buyer beware. If you want to vote 20 days early, these things happen. I think most of the early voting takes place within five days. That's, I think that's what happened in the last one. So what do you think about those calls for we need to tweak early voting because of Don Carl? Yeah, it's hard to say how the legislature will respond to this. I think a lot of people share your assessment, Jim, that, you know, if you vote a month before or 20 days out from uh, an election, something could happen between then and the end of the election. And I think you're right. I think most people take a caveat emptor, let the buyer beware attitude. I didn't fill out uh, Dan McGowan's quiz on the potential <laughs> placement of the candidates until just uh, Thursday, this past uh, Thursday. 
I don't see any changes uh, coming to the early voting period, especially just because of the Don Carlson situation. I, I think lawmakers are fairly happy with the way things have turned out. It certainly has not benefited uh, primary challengers and challengers to the establishment so far. Um, a lot of the GOP are arguing that early voting which might have been resisted by the Democratic establishment years ago, has actually benefited them and benefited incumbents um, because it allows that institutional machine to operate mail ballots and so forth. So I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't sensed any appetite uh, from them to change things now. Yeah, I can't imagine that reducing voter access is going to be a priority for any of uh, the state's leaders. But, you know, it is interesting, and I think the voter has to decide if they're willing to take that risk. Um, I had a voter tell me the other day that she got a mail ballot, but she's actually not going to fill it out until Election Day, and then she's going to go drop it off in the box. So she doesn't have to wait in line and do the whole thing at, on Election Day, but she wants to see what happens in the final debates and all of that. So, you know, I don't think that we're going to stop having debates the last week of the election or news and changes the last week of the election. We're not going to move all of that to before 20 days before the election. So voters basically have to decide, are they so gung-ho about this person that they're going to vote Nothing's for them? Nothing's going to change Nothing's their mind. Nothing's going to change their mind. They're going to vote for them 20 days out. I think some voters are like that, but others are going to wait and see. It's going to be interesting to see how many votes Don Carlson gets, right, when they ultimately open yeah. it up. And who, I mean, who would that have gone to? I, it's, it's impossible to know, right? Yeah, he's really still going to be on the ballot, of course. And I think this is a classic case of an example, a candidate who seemed really good on paper. He's got an interesting background. He's got a lot of credentials. He's been a lawyer. He's been a businessman. Uh, but, you know, in when the real world came, uh, push came to shove, there was something that uh, led him to get out of the race. Okay, we've talked a lot about the Cranston Street Armory, what to do with it. Um, it's provided a lot of material on this show over the years. Now we find out, Kathy Gregg, your colleague at the Journal, got some uh, internal documents that says Mayor Smiley in Providence says we'd be happy to take it on, but we need a little bit of this. $45 million over three years. That's probably not a surprise, but I don't know the state the state is probably wants to get rid of it at this point, right? If he's willing to take it on. I, it, Smiley's been saying this for weeks, if not months, that sure, we'll take the armory, but you have to cut the city a check because that building, and he knows because he was DOA director for the state, he knows it's an expensive building to maintain and to keep up. It's been neglected in some sense for um, a number of years, and the state isn't doing anything with it. They canceled the contract with the company that was going to help develop it. And so the city is extremely motivated to redevelop the armory because it's a huge asset um, in Providence. And so I think they would be happy to take over ownership, but not without money. I mean, Providence doesn't have a lot of money to spare sloshing around to redevelop an old building. Yeah, I mean, well, Steph would probably know City Hall better than me, but I will believe that the, the city is going to buy the armory when it happens. I, can't, <laughs> I mean, I, I have... You want to see the ink dry on the They're not buying oh, it. They're, they're take, they're, the money's flowing the other way. I mean, for, or take, take control of it and, and, and have it be a liability on their books. I mean, remember when, when Jorge Loriza was going to take over the, uh, the Crook Point Bridge? I mean, where is that? <laughs> How's that going? I mean, I've, I mean, I've been, been going through 
charrettes and design things on the armory for just, I, I don't know how long. I, it, I, I don't think anything's going to happen. I don't think anyone wants to touch it. I, I will be very happy when I'm proven wrong and someone actually takes the initiative and does something with it. Um, I mean, right now, it's they, they just are paralyzed yep. um, to do anything with that building. Let's make sure when it happens, Patrick <laughs> gets the invitation and that whoever's signing the contract gives him the pen, right? That would be yeah. the... Uh... On the face of it, the armory being a city responsibility rather than a state one may makes sense because it's more of a, a city thing. But the obvious issue is how Providence has been hard up for money for forever. So that was the obvious question. And one thing to watch going forward is how of the $45 million ask from the city to the state, 27 million of that would be from the housing priority fund. And it's not hard to imagine that Speaker Shikarchi might frown on that, uh, given how housing has been a key part of his agenda. And while we're all sympathetic to the idea of revitalizing the armory, housing money seemingly would not be aligned with that. And wasn't one of the other parts for the after, after school stuff? So isn't that, again, McKee forcing, let's turn the armory into my pet project of after school stuff? I mean, it's just... I, it's I don't a, know if it's feasible to put housing in the armory, but I would It there. isn't. It, it, it isn't really. What about the Learn 365? The, you know, that, they got, it got a lot of... Um, well, it's going, apparently it's going in the armory. But. Well, no, but I mean, now you see he's, we get the press releases, and, you know, Newport signed on and South Kingstown and whatever. I, I still wonder, there, you know, the, McKee says there are metrics on that, but I kind of wonder. And, what, how the, and when the money runs out, then what happens, right? And there's no reason not to sign on because, sure, you get some money. You get money and, from the state. And, and no one's disputing that after-school programs are good. I think the question is he's tying Learn 365 to increased RICAS scores, and so you would think that the, what would increase RICAS scores would be something in the classroom as opposed to the after-school. After-school activities have a, other great benefits in terms of social-emotional health and, and all those things, so we'll see. I mean, we'll see if the goal is reached and if the RICAS scores reach Massachusetts levels. And for those of you who don't know, the Learn 60, 365, McKee, Governor McKee came out with it earlier this year. It's a lot of enhanced extracurricular to try to make up for what's going on in the pandemic. There have been some critics. I know Dan McGowan's been very critical of it, but but again, as long as the money's there, the, the communities will probably sign on, right? Yeah, they will. And then the but the question is what is the bigger impact? Is that going to have a structural difference to learning uh in the state? Um What's I, happening I from 9 to 3 as opposed to 3 to 6, right? Right. And, and it's not like there is there is no after-school learning in and there in in a lot of these school districts. It's just not centralized in in kind of a uh, an official program. So I I don't know. I mean, Steph knows a lot more about the education side, but it just doesn't look like it has the scale to really do a huge amount for kind of the bottom line in education. Yeah, this is very much a work in progress. The idea of more after school time, more classroom time, those are all good ideas, but the proof will be in the pudding and we, you know, it's unclear how it will work out. Do you think just as a, the final on the Cranston Street Army, do you think they'd ever knock it down? 
I, you know, that's hard to imagine right now. I mean, I remember when Angel Tavares was mayor, he floated a trial balloon about knocking down the Superman building. And here we are many years later, and we're, you know, still waiting for its revitalization. I think we do like our historic structures in Providence, even when they do become white elephants. Do you think they... Possible no. or not? You don't think no, so? no, I think the politics would just be would be toxic. Uh, and the neighborhood would revolt. And it's much easier to just pay several million dollars a year to, to put keep the this, problem down. Yeah, the road, exactly. Right? It's a perfect can kicker. You just push it down the road and let the next governor deal with it, mm -hmm. and then into the next decade. 100% agree. I love I love that term, can kicker. <laughs> we do that a lot. That. Yeah, I like, you got, you're going to trademark that before he goes. All right, let's uh, let's do outrageous and or kudos. Patrick, what do you have this week? Well, I'm going to break character and go with a kudo, and um, I actually want to give the candidates, the CD1 candidates, a kudo because we. We, we skewered them a little bit. We, we gave them a lot of grief for their number and that you know, these weren't a lot of bright names and there was a lot of, kind of criticism for why are so many people running? What are they doing? They're ruining our summer. But you know, after, after, going, after going through the campaign, I think it had, there has been some really good discussions. I think the debates were good. There were some, some exchanges. And, as it went along and they figured out what they were doing, they became more candid in some cases, maybe not in all cases, mm -hmm. in some cases. And you know, I, I think it, it was a decent campaign in the final analysis. So I just want to give them a shout out because it's not easy to do. I, I know that. You know, the kids going back to school, they have to say, what did you do on your summer vacation? <laughs> Patrick would be like, I had to cover the CD1 <laughs> race after we did the CD2 race. Steph, what are you up my um, outrage, um, my colleague Amanda Milkovitz had a great story this week about the Johnston Sunrise and how um, the mayor of that town pulled the legal notices from the Sunrise and sent them over to the journal. Um, and he, the publisher is claiming it's because the mayor is unhappy with their coverage of his administration. And the mayor admits he's unhappy with, the, with, the, with, with their coverage. Um, it was just a, I encourage everyone to go read it um, in the Globe because it was just a really good sort of First Amendment story and we've we have so few community newspapers left I think the Johnson Center race has one reporter and so it's just uh, important that people support their their local newspapers. well and I think just to add to that that mayor this goes from mayor Policina senior to junior I think the quote was why would we support a guy who's working against us that's how they view the reporter if it's a negative story or what they perceive as a negative story so. And that's a fundamental misunderstanding of journalism. Yeah, exactly. And and he said, well, we want to protect the taxpayers there with all due they're respect to the more. journal. They're paying more to the journal. So. Yeah. I had the same outrage as Steph. Excellent job by Amanda Milkovitz. And it's worth noting that while, although Rodan still has a pretty robust media landscape, the loss has been coverage in outlying communities. You know, years ago, the journal had bureaus throughout the state. The economics of journalism has changed. So most of us are concentrated in the Providence area. Uh, residents of Johnston and Warwick are lucky to have Beacon Communications, which publishes the Johnston Sunrise and the Warwick Beacon. But, you know, I live in East Providence and there are some local papers, but it's not really easy to get in-depth coverage of municipal government. And if you're saying that about East Providence, what is it like for Exeter or Richmond or Burrowville or other communities that are farther from Providence?
Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about this last week. We had uh, Nick Gorham and Amanda on and just talked about, you know, how that affects democracy. When you have, you know how it is when you show up with a camera when you were at Channel 12. Yeah. When you showed up at a meeting, didn't the vibe change? Oh, the vibe absolutely changed. And we would parachute in for stories that had statewide appeal because we were a statewide television station. And so you're not going to have the statewide reporters covering the little issue that only affects the town, but the townspeople care deeply about, and that's why the community newspapers are so important. Yeah, well, just, I mean, city council, town council, those are very important, and that's the first stuff that's gone. Um, that That's the stuff that we're not getting as much coverage of. I mean, I think we're still getting a lot of coverage at the statewide level and even, like, regional, but those those local meetings are the big thing that's that's kind of a gap. All right, folks, thank you. Sorry we robbed you of your summer, but uh, (laughs) great coverage from all of you, and we appreciate you coming on. Ian and Patrick and Steph, and we'll look forward to uh, primary results. We'll have a full recap next week. If you don't catch us Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, you can find all of our shows archived at ripbs.org slash lively. Folks, we, again, will have a full review. We hope you uh, get out to vote on primary day, and we'll have a full breakdown next week as a lively experiment continues. Have a great weekend. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.